if you look at China's internal discussions, this was inevitable. Uh, the Chinese and Huawei is the poster child of Chinese policy. They intended not only to develop indigenous capabilities, but to dominate the global market. So when Huawei started business, there were 11 companies that made telecom infrastructure equipment. Um, now there's three. The reason the others went out of business in good measure has to do with Huawei's predatory trade activities. So China, for whatever reason, and particularly under Xi, has decided to pursue dominance uh, at the expense of other countries. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm Chris Park from Johns Hopkins SICE. Semiconductors, the brain of modern electronics, are essential to industrial, commercial, and military systems in an increasingly digitized global economy. Last month, the Biden administration announced sweeping new restrictions on semiconductor technology exports to China. Dr. James Lewis joins us on the podcast today to discuss the administration's plans to block chips to China. James Lewis is the senior vice president and director of the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to joining CSIS, he was a diplomat and a member of the Senior Executive Service. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Well, Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, I guess to situate our discussion about the Biden administration's semiconductor policy, could you first explain to our listeners what semiconductors are? You know, why are they taking an increasingly central role in our conversations about protecting the American economy in the past couple of years? Semiconductors, colloquially known as chips, uh, because they're little tiny things, are microelectronics that perform many of the functions of memory data processing uh, commands that undergird the digital economy. And they've gone from being uh, relatively small in their application. Uh, these start out as transistors. The big breakthrough of the 1950s was the transistor. And the follow-on was the uh, idea that you could somehow embed these in, in silicon. You could burn into silicon, etch into silicon, uh, designs that allowed for logical activities to take place, for programming to take place. And they have become fundamental to everything we do. And that's been a change in the last 10 years. They're always important, but now as society digitizes, uh, everything has a chip in it, your refrigerator, your car, your phone, you know, your, your flat screen TV. So chips have become the foundational technology for modern, the modern society. So last month, um, I believe on October 7th, um, the Commerce Department announced new semiconductor export controls aimed at China. And it's a lengthy rule with a lot of components. Uh, but I first wanted to focus on restrictions on the export of certain types of semiconductors and uh, export of certain semiconductor manufacturing equipment. So what technologies are the Commerce Department rules targeting and why these technologies specifically? There are two sets of technologies and what's behind it is the conclusion that this administration reached that semiconductors are a core strategic technology and that China was using them to improve its military capabilities. 
uh, and that selling China the capital goods that would allow them to produce their own semiconductors would only increase risk for the US. So uh, very early on, probably in the first few months of this administration, semiconductors were identified as a strategic technology and as a potential choke point for a competition with China. So for that reason, they've been working on this for a while. I don't see the new rule, which is very extensive, also very well drafted um, as a departure. It's the latest step in what's been a sequence of actions to um, deny China access to Western technology. One thing that's worth pointing out uh, is that this is not unilateral. Uh, the original idea of restrictions on semiconductors to exports to China came from Japan during the Trump administration. And the Trump administration probably would have moved on it had they been more organized. Uh, but you've got only a few countries in the world that are at the cutting edge. Uh, the US and Japan, for example, control uh, 75% of the market for semiconductor manufacturing equipment. There's a few European firms, ASML, the Dutch lithography company is the most famous, but this is clearly a choke point, right? And the other countries primarily are Korea and Taiwan. Uh, you've heard the administration is talking about the Fab Four, which is cute, but the Fab Four is the US, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. Um, they, they, these are the countries that dominate the global chip industry. Uh, and if they decide to do something jointly, uh, it will have a real effect. So that's kind of where we're going. China was on the path to join. It would have been the Fab Five, I guess. But the new US restrictions significantly slow uh, China's progress in developing its own chip industry. Well, you mentioned the Trump administration and, you know, during the uh, the former administration, there certainly were export restrictions placed on Chinese companies, you know, Huawei, ZTE come to mind. But how do these efforts in the past administration compare with what the Biden administration has been doing for the past, not just in uh, with the latest uh, rules by the Commerce Department, but in the past, I guess, two years of his administration? Well, a quick potted history of U.S.-China relations would be that when uh, Deng Xiaoping came in after Mao, uh, he reached out uh, to the West. He realized that uh, uh, communism was not helping China uh, reach its potential, as they would say. And the U.S. welcomed this. And so for really for uh, about 30 or 40 years, the assumption was that China and the US were on a path to work together, that China would become more democratic, that it would be a market-based economy. I know because I was in the, these discussions in the Obama administration that there was a willingness to see China eventually become the largest economy in the world. It was something we were not uncomfortable with. Um, what changed is Xi Jinping. And so before Xi Jinping, there was a debate China between what we call the globalists, those who said we should be part of the, a responsible member of the international system, and the nationalists, those who said we should put China's interests first and seek a dominant role. Um, unfortunately for us, the nationalists won, and I think this really goes back to about 2015 when the U.S. realized 
uh, things have gone off course with China. And certainly things like the Party Congress haven't changed that impression. So every administration, starting with Obama, has had to deal with the fact that China is an opponent, right? The Trump administration um, was somewhat, what's a good word, in poet uh, in its policies. It had trouble implementing policies consistently. But there were people within the administration uh, who were strongly uh, opposed to China's efforts to extend its, its, its dominance. And I think they helped shape the policies. Huawei has been an issue for uh, more than a decade. Uh, the starting point publicly is the 2012 hearing House Permanent Committee on Intelligence. Uh, and of course, if you're in the intelligence community, even before 2012, there was concern about Huawei and potential for Chinese espionage. This has a long history and it's sort of led to a denouement. Largely the driver is the more aggressive and nationalistic approach of the Xi administration. There, there would have been problems over China's predatory trade policy, right? I think that was part of the globalist nationalist debate. Should China live up to its WTO commitment, WTO commitments, or should it ignore them when it's in its interest? And as I said, unfortunately for us, the, the nationalist side won. Drive them wild if I can hear me call them nationalists because that sounds like uh, Kuomintang. And so it's, uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, so, you know, these rules are, you know, long, perhaps long time coming, you know, it responds to growing, you know, concerns about the, you know, uh, President Xi, the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and the growth trajectory of China and our changed perceptions of it. But another part of the rules that was striking to me is that, you know, it restricts U.S. nationals. So not only citizens, but also permanent residents from supporting, you know, the development or production of chips at you know, certain facilities in China. So who would the, um, the rules apply to? Who are, you know, what kind of scientists, what kind of American scientists, experts uh, would fall under this new restriction? China's been trying to develop its own chip industry, Stong Xiaoping. And one of the questions not related to this directly is Korea and Taiwan started developing their own industries at the same time. They've been successful and become global competitors. China has not. I assume it has something to do with Marxism, but I, I haven't thought it through. Uh, in this case, we know from watching the Chinese for decades that chip making is an art. You could, if I gave you uh, an advanced lithography machine, or if you gave me one, we couldn't make advanced chips, and we certainly couldn't make them at scale and at a competitive price. It's an art, and for art, you need people. And China has been um, unable so far, somewhat surprisingly, to develop that human capital. Their first approach was, well, we'll just buy Western companies and get the human capital that way. Uh, that was foreclosed by the FIRMA regulations, the reform of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US. Uh, they could no longer buy companies uh, to get the people. Um, and 
that meant they had to look at other things. You know, there's there's something it's uh, colloquially called the sea turtle program, which is to get Chinese who have migrated to the West to return uh, somewhat successful, marginally successful. But the U.S. noticed that the most successful Chinese chip companies were uh, led by executives and researchers who came from either the U.S. or Taiwan, right? And that this was a potential vulnerability. So the effort is to foreclose the movement of these, they're, they're usually Chinese citizens who've come to the US and lived here. They're not Chinese Americans uh, or they're Taiwanese who succumb to the lure of the big money in China. And it's an effort to close those down. So look at the leading Chinese chip companies. They're all staffed by Taiwanese or people who worked in the US. And so this is another element you, you deny the sale of a production equipment, you deny the sale of uh, the transfer of technology, and you try and catch human beings before they can help. So as you said, you know, China, you know, since Deng Xiaoping has been aggressively funding efforts to secure indigenous chip production capabilities, and running, you know, like you said, running into this human capital issues, technological hurdles and whatnot. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if with the new rules, there will be an additional incentive to throw even more money at this problem. But do you see that this is not going to be a problem that China will be able to solve in that China will not be able to achieve, you know, indigenous, fully indigenous you know, chip production capabilities at the advanced level just by, you know, investing more money into it, throwing more state capital at the chip industry? I guess as China will eventually have its own chip industry, and you can't, spend billions of dollars for decades and not have there be some success. And um, what is it? YMTC was on track. SMIC was on track. Uh, both with uh, SMIC was founded by someone who came from Texas Instruments. Uh, so China was on track. They'll get there eventually, but the new rules slow it down significantly. And that's probably the biggest change since they are already so deeply committed to having a chip industry, I don't think this increases the incentive very much, right? It, the whole debate over Huawei probably led China's leaders to conclude they needed an indigenous source of toy. But honestly, if you look at Deng Xiaoping, he was saying that too. I had a talk with a member of the Chinese Academy of Sciences in 2003 where he said it wasn't fair that China had to depend on Western sources. They needed their own industry. Longstanding goal. The dilemma for them, we'll see if they can fix it. I, I'm uncertain. This is, this is the third or fourth try. Each of them involved tens of billions of dollars. And one of them, maybe the try number two or try number three, is sometime in the first decade of this century, um, you know, Beijing announced that chip making was a priority. All the local governments took their direction from that. And you would see these pictures of a local party functionary shaking hands with an executive in front of a building that said like, you know, Guangzhou Fab number 312. If you looked inside the building, there wasn't anything, right? Uh, it was one way to, the, for the party people to show they were following the mandates of Beijing. And two, unfortunately, it looks like there was a degree of corruption. So 
of every $10 billion that went to chips, perhaps not $10 billion actually arrived. And that's that problem, I'm not sure if that's changed. And she has cracked down on corruption. It was essential for him to do so. But it's it's been a, a significant break in the past. I did notice that these restrictions are hyper-focused on advanced chip making, you know, especially chips with you know AI uh, implications, military implications, but they do not necessarily address you know lower end semiconductors that remain, I guess, central to the global economy. And you know, we we read so much about you know the auto chip shortages, and these are not necessarily the most advanced chips going into our you know vehicles. So I'm wondering, you know, with all this focus on advanced chip making, and you know, and while at the same time China does have you know lower end capabilities, so is it a concern that China potentially could weaponize um, its production capacity of legacy, you know, these legacy, you know, uh, lower end chips against the United States? The focus of American policy has been on the most advanced chips, and these are the ones that are. Important for precision guided munitions and fourth generation fighter aircraft and for artificial intelligence with military applications. You're right, though, chips are not that uncommon. A lot of countries make chips, they just make them at a fairly basic level. In fact, the US <clears throat> and is, is not a leader, it's a leader in chips, it's just not a leader in chips for cars, right? And so they're lower. Uh, less advanced. The the rule change that's most interesting to me is that the you used to be able to export chips with a feature size of less than 10 nanometers. And the feature size dictates performance and power consumption. So uh, smaller is better. And the old level used to be 10 nanometers. We thought that was safe to go to China without review. This administration pushed that back to 14 nanometers, right? So basically bumping it back two generations of chips. But that means there's acceptance, even in this administration, that older generation of chips probably aren't controllable and can be safely transferred. Uh, it's harder to compensate for them. And you're seeing the Russians go through this now with uh, Ukraine. Um, the Russians are having to take chips out of refrigerators to put them into PGMs. And it just doesn't work as well. I mean. If the PGM was designed to make ice cubes, maybe things would be going better for the Russians. But uh, you, you know, if you want to build 20th century technology, there's a million places that make chips. Well, not a million. There's a thousand places that make chips like that. But if you want the cutting edge, uh, it's really the Fab Four. On the note of the Fab Four, you know, that's as you said, United States, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea. You know, these countries are, are all at the forefront of innovation on chip technology. And, you know, part of that's, you know, some of these countries are somewhat reliant on U.S. technology, but also they have, you know, domestic and uh, indigenously developed technologies. So I'm wondering, you know, will American allies, these chip fab four countries join in enacting similar export restrictions um, and will they have a choice in, you know, deciding whether or not to, uh, you know, adopt these kind of policies? Well, it, it is it is a key question here. And I'd say right now, the administration is a little more positive than I am. I know the Japanese are on board because this was a Japanese idea, right? They introduced it in the Trump administration. 
uh, we clearly support our own policies, you know, which is also different from the Trump administration. Um, but Korea and Taiwan are conflicted because they live next to China. Uh, China is a huge market. That's true for everyone, including us. Uh, I think ultimately the combination of American regulatory pressure and their own political interests will move them into closer alignment with what we're doing. Um, if you wanna make advanced chips, you need US technology, right? Uh, and if you don't need US technology, you need Japanese technology. So our constraints will um, make it hard for them to build advanced chips and sell them to China. Uh, the second part is politics. I was in uh, Korea about a month ago and um, the Chinese uh, threatened the Koreans. You know, the Koreans announced this publicly, that's why I'm saying this, but in private they said, if you cooperate with the Americans, we'll punish you. And that sort of heavy handed behavior kind of builds support for the US. Um, I often told people, it's not that we're good diplomats, it's that the Chinese are worse diplomats. And so they, they, you know, you can see why Taiwan might be worried about uh, supporting China. It's a, it's a lot of money. And Ty the Taiwanese approach is something called Silicon Shield, which is they have, they have, we talk about the CHIPS Act here, which is 50 billion. The Taiwanese have dedicated 120 billion to new fabs. They want to make themselves the central point of chip production on earth so that if anyone interfered with it, the global economy would collapse. That's true now. If Taiwan stopped making chips, the global economy would collapse, right? But not everyone agrees that that's enough to deter China from invasion. Uh, it might be, but each of these countries has political motives to be more cooperative with the US and then our own regulations support that. You know, you mentioned, you know, we, we just discussed kind of potential uh, divergent interests between countries, potential areas of common ground that may lead to a true cooperation. But I guess another part of this issue is that there are also, you know, private companies, you know, Samsung, Intel, TSMC and Taiwan also play a critical role in, you know, making sure these rules are carried out. So how have American firms and also foreign firms that fall under these rules responded to the export control measures? Well, they're not entirely happy, as you might expect, because China is uh, the biggest market in the world for an individual country for both chips and for chip making equipment. So to be told suddenly, I'm cutting you off from your biggest market, not entirely popular with all these companies, but they um, recognize the risk of working with China and they are, whether they like it or not, subject to the law as much as anyone. Uh, they have, Samsung has a huge presence in the US, Korea is a treaty ally, uh, TSMC, uh, is building in the US, it depends on US technology. So the trade associations aren't happy. It's a huge hit in terms of revenue, but they're going along. 
I've heard some discussion that you know these companies may try to create alternative supply chains that revolve around non-U.S.-based technologies to kind of skirt the rules, but continue to sell some advanced semiconductors and manufacturing equipment to China. Is that a realistic expectation, or do are U.S. technologies so critical and uh, I guess advanced to? For these companies to fail to replicate these in an alternative supply chains uh, centered around China, it overreaches traditional and export controls. And so, a historic example would be uh, satellites. Uh, also, a concern revolving around China: the U.S. decided it didn't want to sell communication satellites to China, and that no one else could sell a communications to satellite to China if it had U.S. components. So, what did the Europeans do? Of course, they built alternative sources of supply, and that will happen here too. There's two things that are worth taking into account. First, it's not something you can do right away, right? So the Chinese will try and build. The Russians are trying to build. The Iranians are trying to build. They're all trying to build alternative supply chains, and the Chinese are best placed to make it work.、Uh, but they have to overcome the regulatory hurdles, and they have to overcome the Political、uh, concern that,、um, affects Iran. For example, Iran will pay you really well, help contribute to their nuclear program. And for a while, some European companies were tempted, but、uh, a little enforcement action and people changed their minds. So, I think I, I'm confident that China will have its own chip industry. But it, it's now further out than it was before these rules. It, they were talking internally about twenty, twenty thirty, twenty thirty five. We've probably delayed them by five or ten years.、Uh, so it's inevitable, but、um, it's going to be hard to build around U.S. controls in the near term. So far in our discussion, we've talked about the new. Uh, export control restrictions coming out of the Biden administration earlier in October, but earlier this year, the United States, or I guess Congress, passed into law and President Biden signed into law the Chips and Science Act that、uh, that promotes domestic semiconductor research and production. You know, somewhat heavy subsidies to companies building new fabrication plants in、uh, in, in U.S. borders. Should these efforts to spur domestic innovation be understood in tandem with efforts to block Chinese innovation, or should are these two separate policies that, you know, while both relating to semiconductors, should be viewed in、uh, different lights? They're, no, they're they're linked by China, but the way people usually describe them is you have a defensive policy, which is to deny China access to American technology. And an offensive policy, which is to accelerate American innovation.、Uh, after some debate,、uh, the Chips Act came about because COVID helped, the chip shortage helped. You know, people realized this is a crucial technology,、um, and the U.S. was until the Chips Act the only country that did not subsidize its chips industry. And、one result of that, I would argue, is that our share of chip production went from thirty percent to twelve percent, because other people, you're a com, you're a chip company. Com, capital is a big problem for them, the cost of capital. Somebody comes to you and says, "I will give you a multi-billion dollar subsidy if you locate in my country." 
well, that's going to make them more attractive. So we've seen fabrication flow the U.S. and the CHIPS Act was an effort to reverse uh, that. The other that uh, we've realized in some way Xi Jinping made a huge strategic error by being so. He assumed it was China's moment and so he's been very aggressive and assertive in, in saying that. And if he'd kept quiet, the U.S. would have rolled along being fat, dumb, and happy. Because after the Cold War ended, we cashed in on the peace dividend. And that meant we stopped investing in research and development, including the research and development needed chips. And the CHIPS Act not only gives you incentives to build in the US, it provides support for the R&D needed for the workforce and for the research that go into chip making. So think of it as you know, two sides of the same coin. One is defensive, keep China from getting Western technology. The other is offensive, increase U.S. capability to make chips. I wanted to conclude our discussion today by hearing your assessment of the Biden administration's semiconductor, uh, I guess you would call strategy, you know, especially as it relates to the latest uh, export control measures announced. You know, China has sought out an indigenous chip industry since, as you said, since Deng Xiaoping. But now it'll be forced to be less dependent on the United States and uh, American chips. So looking at a decade or two down the line, is the United States losing a key leverage over China? If you look at China's internal discussions, this was inevitable. Uh, The Chinese and Huawei is the poster child of Chinese policy. They intended not only to develop indigenous capabilities, but to dominate the global market and to destroy foreign competitors. So when Huawei started business, there were 11 companies that made telecom infrastructure equipment. Um, now there's three, and the reason, one being Huawei. The reason the others went out of business in good measure has to do with Huawei's predatory trade activities. So China, for whatever reason, and particularly under Xi, has decided to pursue dominance Uh, at the expense of other countries. I was talking with a senior Australian official yesterday who said that the Chinese appear to hope that Australia will become a tributary state, right? Um, And accept Chinese dominance, uh, which they're um, not prepared to do, not because they love the US, uh, but because countries want to make their own sovereign decisions. And it's China's decision Uh, not to compete fairly, to seek uh, political dominance that has driven this. As as I said, if you had asked people in 2012, um, China's going to become the biggest uh, economy in the world, does that bother you? I think no one would have said it was a bother because they felt a big market, uh, an American friend, uh, that'll be great for the world. And it's the policies pursued under Xi Jinping that have changed that. Some of those policies include displacing Western companies. Every Western company that does business in China knows that they're eventually going to be forced out. So I'm not sure this, maybe it's accelerated that, but it hasn't changed the overall trend. Well, Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us uh, today for such a fascinating discussion on a complex and evolving issue. Well, thank you. Uh, Good to be here. 
Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.